0: Where does consciousness come from? What happens in our brains when we die? And what can out-of-body experiences teach us about how we create our own realities? I'm Anna Machen and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And in this final week, we're looking at the neuroscience of death
1: and consciousness. So different cognitive functions that are part of consciousness are in different brain regions.
2: A moment of separation between two me's. There are a lot of conditions where the brain's not functioning short of cell death.
0: This is how we're wired. We started this series thinking about the beginnings of our brains. How nerve cells come together to form structures that fundamentally underpin how we move, how we see, how we love, how we grow and change into the people we become. But, as we all know, at some point all living things must die. Well, apart from the immortal jellyfish, but that's a story for another day. So, what is death exactly? I thought I'd gather some opinions. The
3: process of death is us ending, essentially.
2: It's when your body stops to function and starts decaying on a large scale. If
0: you shut down like a building, then all the lights go off, everything turns off, all the machines and lights. Maybe it is
3: really like the ultimate like void in some sense. I would say it's probably a gateway. It's like turning a light switch down, you know. I think it's just everything just slowly kind of shuts down.
0: One biological definition of death is the irreversible cessation of all biological functions that sustain an organism. The truth is, none of us will really know what dying is like until we experience it for ourselves. There are some people, however, who have gotten somewhat closer to that knowledge than
3: others. I was actually living at the time in Jamaica. My mother is Jamaican. During that time, must have been about nine and a half, I had my tonsils out. And that was the operation that went wrong.
0: That's Gillian Brain. Gillian lives in Swindon nowadays. And after a busy career as a lecturer and manager in further education, she fills her days playing with grandchildren, singing in choirs, directing plays, running French language clubs and collecting memorable moments and experiences. But... It was when she was a child that she had one of her most unforgettable experiences of all.
3: I went in for an ordinary tonsillectomy, which lots of people have, and at some point, where the tonsils were cut, would not stop bleeding. And there was consternation, and then there was panic, and then there was a point where the doctor thought that I died and huge resuscitation measures came into force. And... I just have this extraordinary memory of what I thought at the time was just like a funny dream, and it happened during this operation. In the dream, I was outside of my body. I was floating, hovering, above my body i have a sense of blueness dark blueness but there was nothing else around me there was no no people no things no moon no sun no stars no anything the deep blueness probably came from that you know when you look into the depth of the sea or whether you look up to the depth of the sky that so it was just a i am I am somewhere deeply away. was later told, obviously, by family that there was total panic going on with the surgeon desperately trying to stop me um, from bleeding. But I didn't feel any pain. I didn't feel any panic. I didn't hear any noises. And my overriding emotion was, how do I get back down there? It was just a little bit like being lost in the wood, but not being frightened and just thinking, oh, I wonder which is the way back.
0: Gillian had had what's called a near-death experience. You might have heard of these before. Some people report seeing light at the end of a dark tunnel, or being visited by loved ones, or even angels or otherworldly beings. But actually, out-of-body experiences are the most common type of near-death experience that people well describe. For some, they come along with visions of the operating table their real body is lying on. Others report feeling like they're flying across great oceans or mountains. Still others, that they've entered another realm or universe entirely. These experiences have long fascinated philosophers and spiritual leaders. And they aren't only caused by being near death. But now, with new technology, scientists are finding ways to stimulate these experiences in the lab.
1: The longest (laughs) corridor in (laughs) neuroscience.
0: That's Professor Olaf Blanca, leading us down many long white corridors at Campus Bartek okay. in Geneva.
3: <laughs> Hello. Hello. Hello.
0: Hi. Good morning. Okay, so what? What? This is the out-of-body experience. Yes. Okay, so I lie on here, do I? Yeah, I let.
1: Yeah,
0: I can I can. Okay, I'll climb up the steps. Okay, so I'm sitting on a bed, which is a bit like a like an ambulance bed. I got comfortable while our producer Eva watched on Okay,
3: so I can see Anna is lying on what looks kind of like an ambulance gurney and she's strapped down with these big bright red straps while she's got a VR headset taped to her face and the gurney is moving up and down and that's the sound of the motor moving the bed up and down
0: the virtual reality headset I was wearing was playing a live video feed made up of several cameras that were pointing at me from the edges of the surrounding room. So it was like watching a little movie of my own body moving up and down. Yeah, that was really weird, because at times you do feel like you're floating.
3: Uh-huh. Not all the uh-huh. time, but particularly when it, was,
0: it felt like it was quite a quick movement. You kind of disassociated from your body it's really strange and other times it's quite dizzy making
1: so balance is like in the inner ears you have we have these sensors they give you a 3d orientation they also perceive gravity we normally don't pay attention to this it's just supposed to work right if it fails we see it very strongly and when it fails some patients can report out of body experiences Mm -hmm. so xinping uh, is doing her phd here uh, on this topic, uh, out-of-body experiences and what vestibular processes, balance perception yes. can can be. And that's why you see this platform. Maybe, Xinping, you have a few. So
3: Yes, this setup, we combine <coughs> the virtual reality and also this motion platform. So we want to give you some visual and vestibular concurrent uh, stimulations. And we manipulate the concurrency of these two stimulations to see how they integrate or disintegrate in a brain and it will trigger you some illusions or feel you're outside of your body.
0: So it's playing with that sort of disjointedness between mm-hmm. what you see and your vestibular yeah. experience and that's giving you some insight into what an out-of-body experience might be.
1: Exactly. So much of this work started. So, so balance... In like-
0: one of Olaf's full experiments, I would have been on there for about an hour with the scientists asking me questions like how high in the air do you think you are? How long would it take for a ball to hit the ground if you dropped it from this height? This is how they quantify and compare the different experiences participants have. Not all out-of-body experiences in real life are caused by this mismatch between movement and vision. But the hope for scientists like Olaf is that these experiments can help us better understand how we create our own sense of embodiment, and ultimately the nature of consciousness itself.
3: I would say that consciousness is being able to be aware of your surroundings.
0: I know there's this whole idea of consciousness being part of like the soul, as in your soul is connected to being conscious. I think it's like when you're awake, when you're like... Using your senses.
2: Maybe attached with emotions or something that goes beyond just pure objectivity, like some sort of sentiment attached to it.
3: I think consciousness is the ability to think and be aware of my surroundings. You have to be like engaged in the world and aware of what's going on around you. I don't think it's a physical thing, solely a physical thing.
0: Am I aware I'm here right now? Yes. Right, well, that's consciousness. So, to a scientist like Olaf, what is consciousness?
1: Many answers have been given, right, over the last 2,000 years, mostly in philosophy. So what we're trying to do is bring engineering, study the brain, how is the brain involved in consciousness. But starting with the definition, maybe two simple ones could be be given. One is something like the level of consciousness. So we all fall asleep every day and wake up the next morning and there's clearly a state of non-consciousness between those. And then there is another part, which is a great part of research and we are mostly into this, which is what is consciousness about? Like the yellow table or focusing on a sound or focusing on one's body. And a uh, critical aspect could be also the self, but even among scientists and what is the right definition of consciousness? We're not there yet, which makes, of course, consciousness an exciting field. We have figured out more or less where vision is happening. how how we can see certain colors and which areas are involved. But for consciousness, we have a lot more work to do. It seems to be uh, not just because philosophically it's interesting. It seems to be one of the biological questions out there, which which we'll work on, I think, for, for many more centuries.
0: So you mentioned there that we've kind of worked out where vision is in the brain. Do we know where consciousness sits in the brain?
1: Yes. So people have uh, definitely studied this, I'd say for 50, 60 years, this is um, a research topic that's increasing in importance. So there are certain areas in the cortex, in the highest brain functions that have been linked to this. People have looked at visual consciousness. So then you have a lot of regions in the visual brain that are involved. But even when you study visual consciousness, you see other areas more in the front of the brain that are linked more to attention. And we can also think that focusing attention on the blue microphone over there of course it's a visual process but it's also attention related so different cognitive functions that are part of consciousness are in different brain regions and they also play a role so the key role then to understand is are there essential regions that we need for consciousness and that's a very ongoing topic of of research
0: no because i was thinking you know if let's say for example yes you're you're blind so that visual consciousness has is not there Mm -hmm. but then still you you're experiencing consciousness so so it's about actually fundamentally finding which of the components you have to have
1: exactly to be Absol- absolutely so the blind person is is a very interesting example first of all there may be even visual cortex so visual cortex could be involved blind people can have visual hallucinations for example quite complex hallucinations seeing people although you've been blind from very early on but exactly like you say the main argument is well if I'm blind, or if I'm a deaf person, or if I lose part of my feeling cortex, I still have consciousness. So they cannot be the essential areas, right? So it's crosstalk between different areas. And this is one domain that we are working on. We're looking at a form of consciousness called self-consciousness, but this is based on how auditory, visual, and tactile cortex are talking to each other, and what could be connecting those kind of regions.
0: So, and I don't know whether this has been explored, but obviously, as an evolutionary anthropologist, I have to ask you an evolutionary question. So, Why do we feel consciousness evolved? What is the advantage of being conscious?
1: I think a lot of scientists that work on consciousness will have different definitions and different reasons why it may have emerged. But consciousness itself seems to be another form of internally reflecting and working with and re-representing information that your brain has access to. This feeling level or this re-representation of something we're perceiving may have the advantage that then it could be a a level that also boosts cognitive processes, better decision-making. But it's a slow process, whereas the brain is, is, is still coordinating and, and processing all this other information. But I think there's an advantage in terms of cognitive and more detailed information processing and revisiting information.
0: Let's move on to what you do here specifically. So can you explain to me the sort of studies you're carrying out here?
1: So we've been. So, if, if I would be looking at my left hand, stretched out in front of me, I can look at it. I can close my eyes. I still feel it. I can touch my hand. That's a third stimulus. I can I can uh, snap my finger, and that's a fourth stimulus. So this is four representations of my left arm. I only feel consciously to have one. But from my brain's point of view, this is four different brain areas. Visual, left arm in the back of the brain, the auditory representation, and yet in other regions, the other one. So they, they have to talk to each other. So we are, we are very interested in how these four areas talk Not only talk to each other, but look at a fifth kind of region, which integrates all of these. And so what we have seen and other people have seen in an illusion called rubber hand illusion is that when you see your hand experimentally at a different position where you feel it, and that can be a fake hand, that can be virtual reality, the brain is exposed to something that it tries to avoid and it tries to integrate those, whether we want it or not. And so visual is dominant, very precise. So it overtakes sort of the felt position. And so it grabs that information and, and recalculates it over the visual hand, sometimes even for totally ridiculously looking kitchen glove, uh, fake hands like that. And so it shows in a first step, we're not yet at self-consciousness, but that what my brain perceives as my own hand can be biased in an illusion to some representation where really my hand is not. I think that just shows that these multi-sensory forms of integration are happening all the time. So what we have looked at is take illusions like this and apply it to the body as a whole. And we used VR for this, and instead of hiding the hand, we put a head on a display on, people were watching or seeing an avatar of themselves.
0: It's not dissimilar to the work on how virtual reality can help treat chronic pain that we heard about in the pain focus episode. So, do we know when in human development, we develop self consciousness
1: developmental psychology is is I think fundamental and very important things about the self have been said about self awareness until you 're eighteen months old apparently we don 't recognize ourselves in the mirror so we 're in front of a mirror we 're looking around and we 're trying to get in contact with that nice-looking friend on the other side of the mirror. And so children, before 18 months, they will walk to the end of the mirror, their partner or friend is doing the same, and then they look behind the mirror and they sometimes even start crying because then the friend is gone and so on. It's a more primitive, it's a, it's an earlier mechanism, shared probably also with more animals, and that's very active already in children, way before this. Cognitive, visual realization theory of mind related, and, and many other things that—that that is me, a reflection of me on, on on the other side. So, how do you test this experimentally? So, this avatar illusion, we tried to do it with a developmental psychology group in Paris, but this avatar is just too boring for them. So there was puppeteers and, and, and everything was tried. So so we're going to go back to this, I think, at some point. But it it really needs, you cannot just simply set it up like this. It's, it's a very difficult study, obviously, to, to do. So we won't give up, but it would be, I think, very important to see how does consciousness, how does self-consciousness emerge this feeling that we're somebody special this feeling that, uh, that I am here right now, how does it emerge just from physical activity, I think just having a body, and I think most extremely, how can neurons, the elements of the brain, lead to, to that sensation? Because you can have neurons in a dish, right? You could have neurons in a dish, and you put two neurons, and you can study how they talk to each other. They're not conscious, but the, of course the question could be, well, how many of these neurons, how many of these pairs do I need to combine to make it conscious? Of course, that's a terrible question to ask. Of course, we don't, you know, we don't want to be creating this, but maybe that's something actually the neuroscientists would like to have to create consciousness. Of course, this is also a bit sad because then it means they are not really anything special either, and it can be recreated in other ways. But but I think that's what what we are confronted with, and that's why of course this is so so interesting because in the end it always loops back to us. It generates us as we're sitting here, and this, and not just what I remember of but myself, but the feeling in the first place that I'm someone.
0: We all have a feeling that I am someone, more than just something. And one of the eternal questions humans have reckoned with since time immemorial is, well, will I continue to be someone after I die? I deeply want to believe that there is more than just this. I guess
3: the only thing we know for sure is that we don't know for sure. For me, death is, yeah, it's just the end of the line
0: i mean i can't really say you become a ghost because that's not very scientific
3: but you kind of think something must happen i don't think it all just stops from our point of view the definition of happening uh, doesn't even exist anymore i've definitely
2: been interested in the idea of reincarnation for a while
3: i think when you die you're dead and that's it
2: maybe my energy from my body then Go somewhere else. I mean, or there could be, like, 500 different
3: versions, but we also just won't know.
0: For some, near-death experiences feel like they point to some answers here and they can take on deep spiritual or religious
3: meaning. But that wasn't the case for Gillian. I didn't feel any panic. I didn't feel this is the end, I am going to die or I am dead or anything like that. It was the biggest sensation was... A moment of separation between two me's. The me there on the operating table and the me here hovering above. Whether if I had been an adult, I might have had a different kind of emotion. I don't know that um, children think a lot about or particularly aware about death. At the time, I didn't find it in, in, in any way particularly significant. At that age, I would have just said, oh, I had a dream. Um, and nobody was particularly interested in asking me what it was I suppose so that that passed by but the dream was so, so vivid so vivid compared with any other dream I've ever had in my life it stayed with me the the feeling of it, the emotion of it the calmness of it, the clearness of it the blueness of it (laughs) the separation sense that I had in it always stayed with me
0: Olaf has focused his research on the content of consciousness. But other scientists look at the levels, i.e. how conscious are you at a given moment. And there's evidence to suggest that it's these levels that may explain near-death experiences.
2: First off, the brain is not dead during near-death. The brain is active during the near-death experience.
0: That's Professor Kevin Nelson. He's a neurophysiologist at the University of Kentucky with a particular interest in near-death experiences.
2: When the brain dies, the cells burst. So it's as if you had a water balloon, 100 billion of them, and you're bursting them. There's no way, scientifically, to put that burst back. But there are a lot of conditions where the brain's not functioning short of cell death. There's a borderland of consciousness where you can have blood flow that's enough to sustain brain viability but not function. To a neurophysiologist, um, consciousness is awareness. We have three physiologic states that are characteristic where we can achieve awareness. We have waking consciousness, which most of our listeners will be in right now and perhaps the more they listen to me they may fall into the second stage of consciousness which is non-REM sleep. One does some dreaming and has awareness during non-REM sleep but it's really in the third state of consciousness REM consciousness that come to us late in our sleep cycle that we do our most robust dreaming.
0: In REM which stands for rapid eye movement the visual system is turned on but we are also paralyzed so that we don't act out our dreams. Scientists now know a lot about how we switch between REM consciousness and waking consciousness. And it's this switch that Kevin believes is most relevant to our understanding of near-death experiences.
2: The transition between waking and REM consciousness is physiologically best understood of all the transitions. And most of the time, the vast majority of the time, we make that transition seamlessly. And the reason is that there's a portion of the switch that's in our deep brainstem responsible for setting the stage of consciousness. That switch generally can only exist in two states. You're either REM on or you're REM off. And if you're REM off, you're in wakeful consciousness. And if you're REM on, you're in REM consciousness. In some people, that doesn't necessarily work 100% of the time. On occasion, that transition is incomplete. And instead of moving seamlessly from waking consciousness to REM consciousness, there is a blending of these two conscious states into a hybrid conscious state. Um, So you have features of both waking and REM occurring together. This hybrid conscious state is, is unstable, lasts for generally only moments. And then it reverts to a, a more stable conscious state, either REM consciousness or waking consciousness. Not all of us are born with the same attributes uh, with our REM conscious switch. In some individuals, some are predisposed to having a mixing and blending of the two conscious states. The most probably notable example that, that people are aware of is, is narcolepsy, where because of a deficiency, that co- the REM consciousness switch is very sloppy. And there's frequent transitions and immediately from REM into waking consciousness, waking consciousness into REM um, that are incomplete. But in fact, many people, seemingly otherwise normal people that don't have narcolepsy, have a varying disposition to mixing REM and waking consciousness. About 25% of the normal population will have sometime in their life an incomplete transition. And most often, that manifestation is actually what's called sleep paralysis. The typical story is a young individual stays up all night, perhaps studying for an examination. Um, they're under a great deal of stress. And when they wake up in the next morning, they're completely paralyzed. Their mind is fully awake, but their body is paralyzed, unable to move. Oftentimes, that's very frightening, even though it lasts for generally seconds that seem like minutes. And then uh, the paralysis relents. That's actually a fairly common experience. And in fact, in some cultures, it carries different names. In Newfoundland, it's known as the old hag because there's oftentimes a sense of pressure on this chest during that paralysis. And another feature of REM actually is the appearance of a felt presence, the the sensation that there is someone in the area that can't be seen by whose presence is felt.
0: Now I remember having those as a child those those sleep paralysis and he's actually terrifying yes. because you it's awful to wake in a body that that cannot move, but I didn't realize that that was what the reason was. So
2: that actually means you're probably predisposed to having a near-death experience.
0: Oh my God. Because I was going to ask, because you said some people are more more inclined to, to have a slightly dodgy switch, for example. So if you have a dodgy switch, you're more likely to have this to experience near-death experiences.
2: Yeah. And that's actually what our research and research of others have shown, is that people who have a near-death experience in their lifetime are much more likely to have an incomplete transition between waking... In REM conscious states, they are more likely to have a blending of those two conscious states outside of near death. You know, in their in their normal routine life.
0: Yes. Oh wow. Okay. I'll bear that in mind. That's that's an interesting thing I've learned about myself today. Okay. So let's move on to near death experiences then. So, do we know what happens in the brain during a near death experience? What's gone wrong, as it were?
2: Well, the, the best evidence we have to date is actually that someone with a near death experience is most likely having a hybrid conscious state, blending waking and REM consciousness at a time when often, not always, but often their brain is getting insufficient blood flow. So they may actually be waning and waxing waking consciousness at the same time that they're blending waking and REM consciousness together. There's a lot of reasons that we know of why REM would be triggered under these conditions. And we do know that under the conditions of near death, that REM is more likely to be triggered. For example, the principal nerve leading from the heart and the lungs and the blood vessels is called the vagus nerve. If you stimulate that nerve, you can immediately trigger from waking to REM within seconds. We know that from animals, several animal studies. We also know that in the human clinical setting as well, that the stimulation of the vagus nerve leading from the heart and the lung and the blood vessels will trigger REM consciousness. And it's the principal nerve to the heart, and you can imagine it's very active during the conditions of near-death experience.
0: Studying near-death experiences is understandably tricky, as it's rather unethical to induce a state of near-death. There have been reports of bursts of neural activity in the brains of patients as they pass away. But much like near-death experiences, these aren't seen in everyone who has been studied. Perhaps because we each have a different propensity for the leaky REM switch that Kevin described. And scientists have worked to try and investigate the link between REM consciousness and near-death experiences.
2: The group in Belgium, Maquet, has conducted PET scans and people who are in REM consciousness. And he's made a fascinating study where it's found that certain areas of the brain are turned off during REM consciousness. And these also correlate beautifully with much of the phenomenology and experience of near death.
0: And Kevin sees a link between REM and out-of-body experiences too.
2: Out-of-body experiences have a very strong relationship with REM consciousness. First of all, out-of-body experiences are extraordinarily common in the narcoleptic patient. And if you treat the narcolepsy, the autobody experiences will diminish. I have had narcoleptic subjects who have autobody experiences virtually every night, and they get accustomed to them. Secondly, there is an area of the brain, the temporal parietal area, just above your ears and behind, that brings together the position. Of your body, for example, where your left hand is right now, brings position sense together, it brings hearing together, it brings where you are oriented in a gravitational field, whether you're up or down, you know, sideways, lying, or you're moving, that kind of orientation of gravitational field and motion, and your vision, and puts them all together into a coherent self. This area, when stimulated, with a tiny amount of current, can induce out-of-body experiences like flipping a switch. This area, the same area that Dr. Blank has been able to elicit out-of-body experiences is the same region that's turned off during REM consciousness that Dr. Marquet has has demonstrated with his PET scans. It's the very same area. So this is part of the cohesiveness that we see with REM consciousness and the various elements of the near-death experience.
0: It's clear that research in this area will continue for a long time to come. But I wondered, on a personal level, does the fact that Gillian faced death before make her think any differently about what it might be like when her time comes?
3: I do obviously reflect on on my death, and I have experience of people, including my former husband, who died very suddenly in a, in a train crash. I know one or two people who've died in car crashes or something sudden has happened. And I've always just thought, I don't really want that to happen to me. I'd actually like to experience, even if it's painful, even if I'm drugged. I'd actually want to experience the process. It's the last. It's the last experience you're going to have. All I can say is, when I get the last near-death experience, if I get the last near-death experience, I'm prepared to take it on board, whatever it is. So that's what life is. It's full of experiences.
0: As we've heard throughout this series, whether good or bad, painful or exciting or scary... Our brains are the centre of our experiences and feelings. From hormones to heartbreak to life-changing technologies, we've taken a long look at some of the neuroscience that makes us who we are. But, as Kevin said...
2: The human brain, in the way in which it functions, is oftentimes paradoxical and counterintuitive.
0: So, there are certainly many stories left to tell. Thank you so much to Gillian... Olaf Blanca, Kevin Nelson and all the others who spoke to me for this episode as well as all the wonderful guests who've joined us over the last year. Join us in two weeks for our final focus episode where Eva's looking at strategies to unpick who is likely to wake up from a coma and again two weeks after that where we'll hear from a very special guest. I'm Anna Machen and this is how we're wired how we're wired is a fresh air production for the bertarelli foundation it's produced by eva higginbotham follow now for free so you never miss an episode